This is Point of Discovery, the podcast that takes you behind the front lines of science. I'm Mark Earhart. Whenever scientists give talks about their research, there's this thing you see at the end of their presentations. They show a photo with a group of smiling people. It looks like a family photo, but look closer. Those people around the scientists aren't their kids. They're postdocs and grad students. This is a scientific family. Here's the point of that photo. Behind every breakthrough, there's a lineage of mentors who came before and a passel of protégés carrying the work forward. Today, in the second of a two-part conversation, we have two members of a well-known scientific lineage. Bill Press is a professor of computer science and integrative biology at the University of Texas at Austin and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He recently sat down with the scientist who was his own doctoral advisor, Kip Thorne, one of the recipients of the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery of gravitational waves. They started by talking about Thorne's academic parent, a former UT Austin professor, the late John Archibald Wheeler. Wheeler trained some of the best-known physicists of a generation, including Kip Thorne, who recalls what it was like working together. John was a tremendously inspiring man, full of ideas and ready to let his students flounder and had real wisdom about mentoring students. Those who were a little weaker, he gave greater guidance to. Those who were a little stronger, he truly let flounder, and I floundered. (laughs) Can you expand? (laughs) What kind of a flounder were you? (laughs) Oh, I... I thought I had made a great discovery uh, at one point. I had found a solution of Einstein's equations for a toroidal black hole, a black hole whose shape is like a donut. And uh, I was so excited about this, and I described it to John, and John must have realized that it was wrong. But it took me about three months to realize I'd made an error. Kip, you've had more than 50 PhD students over the many decades. Uh, I was lucky enough to be one of the earlier ones. You've always been very strong on um, teaching your students to communicate well. Uh, I think every student who's ever worked for you has had the experience of giving you the draft of a paper and having it come back marked in red ink with more red ink than the black that they (laughs) submitted to you. How did you come by that? So John Wheeler did that not nearly as extremely as I did, but he did it with to good effect on manuscripts that that I wrote and gave to him. Um, And I realized at the time of working with him that uh, there were aspects to technical science writing that I didn't understand that, that he taught to me through marking up my manuscripts. Well, it's a lesson that that I pass on to my students that um, if you discover something, you haven't really discovered it unless you've succeeded in communicating it. It's the tree falls in the forest problem. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so I did also try to push students in that direction as well. Well, I, I recall, Kip... In the days that there were still chalkboards, that uh, one of the lessons that you insisted that all of your students learn is how to write on the chalkboard without squeaking the chalk. <laughs> when I first met Carolee, uh, who, whom I went on to marry, she said that she that her brother Bruce Winstein 
had been a student at Caltech, I told her, well, yes, uh, I think he was in the first relativity class that I taught. And uh, so she telephoned him up uh, and asked him about me. And his response, his only response was, uh, he has great chalk skills. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know you were interested in gravitational waves in particular when I had the pleasure of being your student, as you said, almost 50 years ago. Um, and you persisted in that interest for a long, long time. What, what did it take to be so laser-focused on, on a subject area like that? When you and I wrote the first paper about uh, our vision for this field of gravitational wave astronomy in 1972, I knew that if the uh, detection of gravitational waves could succeed, it would be tremendously important. And so that was, in one sense, a driving force. But the other aspect of it was that it was a lot of fun. Working on this involved working on really interesting little sub-problems along the way and collaborating. And the collaborations were, in almost all cases, enormous fun. Just the joy of working with brilliant people to throw ideas around with. You always kept the faith that gravitational waves could be used to do astronomy. Did it turn out to be harder than you thought, or was it easy, <laughs> easy smooth coasting all along? <laughs> you know, I have a history of making bets with people, and I usually win when the issue is a science one, and I usually lose when the issue is how fast will it be done. You know, I underestimated how long it would take. Uh, I thought in the early 1980s as we were getting this off the ground that we would have detected gravitational waves by the year 2000. I lost a bet on that to Jerry Ostreicher, a colleague of ours at Princeton. Uh, it, it was harder than I expected, but uh, all the way along, I, you could see what needed to be done. It was a question of how long it would take to do it. I, th I think what I feel mostly is some profound satisfaction that I did put my energies in the right directions. Now that we know that LIGO is a success, what are we going to learn from its future observations? With the colliding black holes, I don't know whether you call it astronomy or you call it physics, but it's really interesting. You're exploring the dynamics of highly curved space-time, highly warped space-time. With neutron star collisions, the first neutron star collision that was observed, it produced electromagnetic waves in all frequency bands. The stars collided, they created a fireball, the fireball expanded. Roughly 15% of all the world's astronomers participated in observing this thing, observed by more astronomers than any other event in history. At the present time, when LIGO is turned on, we've been seeing about one black hole merge or two black holes colliding and merging every month. We are about a factor of two or three away from the sensitivity that we expect of the current instruments. By 2020, we ought to be at about that sensitivity. You're seeing two or three times farther into the universe. You cube that for the volume, uh, and you conclude that we should see black holes merge a few times a week, maybe once a day, and we should see these neutron stars collide maybe 
once a month, uh, a few times a month. I'm in the interesting situation that my professor yourself has won a Nobel Prize, and my student, Adam Reese, also won a Nobel Prize. But I don't think I ever had even the ghost of a chance. No, but I think you're a lot smarter than I am or than Adam is. Oh, thank you. You can leave that part out. <laughs> no, don't leave that part out. <laughs> Kip, after you won the Nobel Prize, there was some secret back-channel communication among all of your former students, um, resulting in an event that I know you know a lot about. How could you describe that? <laughs> I was up giving this talk when suddenly a bunch of my former students and postdocs started to file into this uh, banquet room. This is a banquet room filled with people like... Uh, Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, who were the masterminds behind uh, Westworld, the TV series Westworld, and, and various friends of mine, colleagues from Hollywood as well as Caltech, a lot of illustrious people. And I could not figure out what was going on. Uh, and I muttered some sort of mild profanity under my breath that my wife at least caught. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, it, it turned out that they were all there to you were all there. You were among them, Bill. Mm -hmm. Were all there to kidnap me and steal me away from this banquet connected with this conference and take me back to Pasadena for a reunion with former postdocs and graduate students. And, to uh, a much livelier party than much the one you were at, a much but not with such party. famous people. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah, but with people who are a lot more fun to be with. <laughs> It, it was a lot of fun. It would have been a lot of fun even if you hadn't won a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Point of Discovery is a production of the University of Texas at Austin's College of Natural Sciences. To hear part one of this conversation, where Kip Thorne and Bill Press talk about science in Hollywood, visit us on the web at pointofdiscovery.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our senior producer is Christine Sinatra. Special thanks to Bill Press and Kip Thorne for today's conversation, and to the family of Bryce DeWitt and Cecile DeWitt Moret for their involvement in bringing Dr. Thorne to Austin for the inaugural Cecile DeWitt Moret Memorial Lecture. Find a video of that lecture with a lot more interesting behind-the-scenes science on our website, along with notes on today's music, archival lab photos, and a fun infographic that relates to the famous scientific family featured on today's show. I'm your host and producer, Mark Earhart. Thanks for listening. <laughs>